The man you see pictured on the screen is Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. He is recognized as the leader of ISIS. ISIS is one of, if not the, primary persecutors of Christians across the globe. The man you see on the screen, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, is responsible, directly or indirectly, for the deaths of hundreds, if not thousands, of Christians in the Middle East and around the world. And here's the thing. He believes he's doing the will of God. He believes he's doing the will of his God as he terrorizes Christians and other Muslims and other people across the globe. So I have a question that I think is going to make some of us feel a little uncomfortable. What do you want to happen to him? What do you want to happen to Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi? Now, if I'm honest, my first reaction, my gut-level response is that I want him to suffer and die a horrible death. When I think of the ways that he's terrorized people around the globe, when I think of the lives that he's responsible for, it seems like a terrible death is what is fitting and due his crimes. Maybe you feel the same way. But then I think about this next question, which makes me even more uncomfortable. What does Jesus want to happen to him? I think in our gut, in our heart, most of us know the answer to that question. And I think it makes us uncomfortable because it's not what we want to happen to him. I think most of us, if we spent any time studying the life of Jesus, studying his teachings, we know that Jesus doesn't want him to suffer and die a horrible death, but that Jesus wants him to repent and be forgiven of his sins. And I think that makes a lot of us uncomfortable because it messes with our ideas of justice and it messes with our ideas of fairness and it messes with our ideas of right and wrong. And yet when we look at the message of Jesus, that's exactly what that message does. So I've got one more question that I think is going to make you the most uncomfortable of all, and it's this. What if God told you to go minister to Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi? What if Jesus showed up to you in a vision and said, I want you to go to this man, I want you to lay your hands on him and pray for him and tell him about me? I think at that point we would all say something along the lines of, oh, heck no. Right? We would say, yeah, wait, God, God, I think you must have got your signals crossed up there. Do you know who that guy is? Do you know what he's done to people? Do you know what he does to Christians? I like my head where it is. Thank you very much, Lord. I think that would tend to be my initial reaction, my initial response. If, if Jesus showed up to me in a vision and said, I want you to go lay your hands on and pray for Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, I'd say, whoa, 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 whoa. Do, do you, you know who he is, right? I mean, he, he's the guy who, who kills people like me. This is, you're sending me on an imposter, you're sending me to my, to my death, basically, is, is what that mission would feel like. Maybe you'd feel the same way. So I want you to keep that in mind as we look at today's passage in the book of Acts. 
We've been studying through the book of Acts in a series we've called On Mission. The book of Acts is, is a book written by the historian Luke. He tells us the story of the early church after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. He gave his followers instructions. He told them to go out and to share his message with the rest of the world. He told them to make disciples of Jesus. And so as we've been studying the book of Acts, we've seen them carrying out Jesus' instructions. They started in the city of Jerusalem and they started proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And people started coming and joining their church just hand over fist. It it, it was incredible growth in Jerusalem. So we've been tracking them as they began in Jerusalem, as they slowly began to spread outside of the city into the surrounding areas, preaching the message of Jesus. Last week, we were introduced to a new character in the story. Saul of Tarsus. We know that Saul was a young Pharisee. He was one of the religious leaders. The Pharisees were the people who were always standing in opposition to Jesus and his ministry. And they were the people who were standing in opposition to his followers later on as they proclaimed the message of Jesus. Luke tells us this this young Pharisee was present when the religious leaders murdered Stephen, a great leader in the early church. Luke tells us that he was standing there, that that these religious leaders laid their coats at the feet of Saul, and that Saul was approving of Stephen's murder. Saul approved the murder of this early Christian. And not only that, but in Acts chapter 8, Luke tells us that Saul began to destroy the church. Luke tells us that he went from house church to house church, Tearing people out from their, from their houses, from their churches, because they had church in their homes. And he would tear them out, both men and women, and carry them away, either to prison or sometimes to death. We're fortunate enough, actually, to have some of Saul's own testimony. He talks about his role in this terrorism, this early terrorism of Christians. And he tells us that he was consenting to their death. That he hated this group of people so much because he believed that they were blaspheming the truth about his God. That that he believed he was doing the will of God. And he went into these houses, he tore them out, and led them away to prison and consented to their death. Saul of Tarsus. We're going to pick up his story in Acts chapter 9. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 9. We'll begin in verse 1. I'll put the text up on the screen as usual. Acts chapter 9. Verse 1, here's what Luke says. He says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Now, meanwhile indicates a passage of time. How much time? Good question. Scholars estimate between one and two years. Saul spent between one and two years terrorizing the Christian church in Jerusalem and Judea. One to two years going from house church to house church, ripping people out, bringing them off to prison and to death. But that wasn't enough for Saul of Tarsus. This early terrorist and persecutor of Christians. No, that, that he, he, he wasn't content with just terrorizing the church in Jerusalem. Luke tells us he went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. So that if he found any there who belonged to the way, the way was what they called the followers of Jesus back in the first century. 
If he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Saul was so committed to his mission of persecution that he was going to leave Jerusalem and go to Damascus. Now I want to put this in perspective for you. If this is Jerusalem, Damascus is 135 miles northeast of Jerusalem. 135 miles. Now remember, in the first century, they didn't have cars. They didn't have planes. They didn't have trains. None of that. If you wanted to get somewhere in the first century, you would either take a boat, if there was a a way, if there was water to get there and the weather was good, boat travel, sailing, was about the fastest. But from Jerusalem to Damascus, there was no waterway. So you would have to either take a beast of burden, you'd have to either go uh, on a horse, a donkey, a camel, or most people simply walked. Most people simply walked in those days. So what we're talking about is a 135-mile journey, probably on foot. For reference, that's about the distance between here and Cincinnati. So just imagine walking from here to Cincinnati. All because you hate a group of people so much you want to bring them harm. Now scholars tell us that in those days, at most a person traveling on foot would travel about 15 to 20 miles a day. The Roman postal system uh, could go a little bit faster. They had uh, horses and, and they had different stations set up so you could ride a horse. When that horse got tired, you could switch it out for a fresh horse and maybe you could make 30 miles a day. But for Saul going to Damascus probably about 20 miles a day. In other words, this would have been a journey of well over a week on foot, all because he hated this group of people that much. Imagine harboring that much hate, that much animosity in your heart that you'd be willing to walk to Cincinnati just to do somebody harm. That's a lot of zeal and hatred and terror. Now here's the thing. Saul believed that he was doing the will of God. Saul believed that he was doing the will of God. All kinds of atrocious, horrible things have been done by people throughout history in the name of God, believing that they were following the will of their God. So as Saul is on the way to Damascus, as he's on this well over a week journey to go terrorize Christians, something happens. Luke tells us what it is. It says, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? At which point you can imagine that Saul was probably beginning to feel a lot of things. Perhaps wet was one of them. That kind of experience can, can tend to cause some bodily functions when, when, you're, when you're shocked and the light shines and, and you hear this voice. And, and so Saul responds and he says, Who are you, Lord? Now the word translated Lord here has a wide range of meanings. It can mean Lord like we talk about God. It can also mean the respectful term Sir. They would use the, the term had a wide range of meanings. So Saul is basically saying here, Who are you, sir? Who, who's talking to me? What's going on? And I don't think he was ready for the response that he got. I am 
Jesus, whom you are persecuting. At which point, I just imagine Saul's heart just sunk and he went, oh no. Right? Realizing that this, what he's been doing all along has been the wrong thing. The, the one he's been persecuting uh, really has been risen from the dead and is now back to get vengeance on Saul. I can just imagine Saul probably terrified at this point. Because Saul knows that as he's read his Old Testament scriptures, what, what we call the Old Testament was just their Bible. As he's read his Bible, he knows that, that if you start messing with God's people, it's not good for you. And so if Jesus really is risen from the dead and he's been persecuting them and now he's you know, in the middle of the desert and Jesus shows up, he's probably afraid that he's probably going to have to pay for this with his life. So Jesus' next words probably actually brought him a little bit of comfort. Jesus responds, Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. At this point, I just imagine Paul going, Whew. Right? Because it could have been a lot worse. When, when, when you're persecuting God's people, and, and, and Jesus shows up right there and says, I'm the one you're persecuting, and he says, Now get up and go to the city. At least Paul realized, Well, at least, at least I'm not dying today. At least this isn't going to cost me my life. Jesus says, Get up and go to the city. You'll be told what you must do. Now, to Saul's credit, he obeyed. He did what he was told. Saul didn't have to go into the city, right? He could have turned around and run back to Jerusalem. Although, if Jesus can find you on the road to Damascus, he can probably find you in Jerusalem, too. Um, so he probably knows that running is, is not his best option. So he obeys Jesus. He goes into the city. Uh, here's what Luke tells us happens next. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. I love that. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. They led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink. This encounter was so shocking, it left him temporarily blind. It may have also been one of the reasons he didn't try to go back to Jerusalem or continue with his mission. It's hard to do things when you're temporarily blind. But to his credit, he still obeyed. He did what he was told. And so he goes into the city of Damascus, and there he waits. Now, if this was a movie, this would be a scene change. We would have a jump cut. We, we would have had a close-up on Saul's face as he was uh, temporarily blinded and, and waiting. So we have Saul's face, then we have a jump cut to the face of somebody else. A man named Ananias. Verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. Now, this is not the same Ananias that we read about in Acts chapter 5. Believe it or not, people in the first century, more than one of them had the same name. So this is a, a different person named Ananias. He's a disciple living in Damascus. Now, this is important. I don't want you to miss this. Now, there was an apostle living in Damascus? No. Now, there was a, a pastor living in Damascus? No. Now there was a famous evangelist living in Damascus? No. Now there was a seminary grad living in Damascus? No. Now there was a best-selling Christian author living in Damascus? No. There was a disciple living in Damascus. Just a regular Disciple, just a normal follower of Jesus, 
somebody who went to work and took care of his family and went to church on Sunday. There's just a disciple, a follower named Ananias. I don't want you to miss this. This is the first and the last time that we ever hear about this man in the book of Acts. In the rest of the Bible, we never hear his name ever again other than this story. We're going to continue. Luke tells us what happens next. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias? Yes, Lord, he answered. If, if, if the Lord calls to you in a vision, it's good to respond. Just, I'll throw that out there. In case that happens this week, if the Lord shows up to you in a vision, it's good to respond. Okay? Uh, just, it's, it's good to answer. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. In other words, Paul is, uh, uh, Jesus is saying to Ananias, I want you to go minister to Saul of Tarsus. This is basically equivalent of Jesus showing up in a vision to one of you and telling you to go minister to Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. This is basically the same thing. So Ananias' response makes a little bit of sense. Here's, what he, here's how he responds. He says, uh, Lord, can, can, I, can I ask a question? Um, do, do you know who this guy is? I mean, you... You, you, you know who this is, right? This, is, this isn't just like some random, random guy. This is Saul of Tarsus. He's, he's the one who's been terrorizing the church, Jesus. Um, you, know, you know what he does to Christians, right? Are, are, you, are you, sure you, you sure you have the right? Uh, uh, listen, I, I, I know your Lord. I, I know your Jesus. But I just, you know, I just want to make sure that you haven't got your signals crossed here because... This guy's pretty dangerous. This is dangerous for me. This could cost me everything. Jesus says, I know. I want you to go anyway. I have heard many reports about this man, Ananias says, and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. Uh, Lord, this may not turn out well for me. To which Jesus responds, go. I love this. I love our, our English versions put an exclamation point after the word go. There is no punctuation in the early Greek. But I just, Jesus is like, I know. I know, but I want you to go anyway. And he tells him why. He says, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And this news must have fallen on Ananias like a brick. Like, just, just like, imagine Jesus showing up to you and telling you that all of a sudden Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi is going to become the new prominent leader in the Christian church today. 
That's what Jesus is telling Ananias is about to happen to Saul. That this man who's been terrorizing these churches is all of a sudden going to become Jesus' chosen instrument to proclaim the good news across the land. And Ananias was like, wait, what? That doesn't make any sense. But what this shows us is that God so often has a bigger plan and a bigger vision than anything that we can ever think up ourselves. God has a bigger plan and a bigger vision than than any plan or any vision that we could come up with on our own. And he sees things differently than we do. The prophet Isaiah records God saying, my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. God sees things from a different level. He has a totally different plan. And sometimes God will ask us to do things in accordance with his bigger plan that we don't understand. That we can't see in the moment. And according to everything that we can see, it doesn't make any sense. And it looks risky and it looks dangerous. But but God has something else going on. And the question is, do we trust him? Do we trust that God's plan and his purposes are higher and bigger than our own? Do we trust him even if we can't see it? Even if we can't understand it? Even if it seems risky and even if it seems dangerous? Do we trust that God knows what he's doing? Luke goes on. Then... Ananias went. Folks, this is huge. This is huge. Then Ananias went. He was obedient to the vision from Jesus, even though it was dangerous, even though it was risky, even though there was no way to guarantee that when he got there, he wouldn't be thrown in handcuffs and dragged off to Jerusalem and executed. He obeyed. And he trusted Jesus despite the danger. Now at this point, it's very likely that Ananias had known somebody that Saul had arrested and potentially had executed. It's very likely that some of Ananias' own friends or maybe family had been victims of Saul's or his cohorts. And yet he obeyed anyway. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. In placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, he called him brother. Setting aside all that Saul had done before, all of the damage, all of the terror, all of the fear that that Saul had wrought in the church, Ananias let all of that go, and he laid his hands on Saul. He called him Brother Saul. The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me to you so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And folks, I don't know how to emphasize this enough. Apart from the resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, this may be the singular most pivotal event in the history of the Christian church. After the resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, this might be the most important event in the history of Christianity. And here's why. Because Saul of Tarsus would become Paul the Apostle. Those of you who have Bibles, hold them up in the air. This man, Saul of Tarsus, 
who became Paul the Apostle, is responsible for writing more than half of your New Testament. Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul the Apostle, is responsible for planting churches throughout the Mediterranean basin and almost single-handedly spreading Christianity across the Roman Empire. And he wasn't witnessed to by some super-apostle. Jesus didn't send Peter. He didn't send James. He didn't send John. He didn't send any of the leaders that were chosen. Acts chapter 6, he chose... Ananias, a regular disciple living in the city of Damascus, to carry out this mission that without it, we probably would not be sitting here today. Believe it or not, all of us here today are more than likely descendants of the faith and the trust of a regular disciple named Ananias. Who, when Jesus told him to go, just obeyed and went, despite not understanding, despite all of the pain and the hurt and the fear that came along with it. And here's what I want to highlight. Ananias had no idea what hung in the balance of his decision to say yes to Jesus. Ananias had no idea that nearly 2,000 years later, there would be a group of people gathering in Bloomington, Indiana, reading about his story. Because he chose to say yes to Jesus. He had no idea what hung in the balance of his decision to say yes, even though it was risky, and even though it was dangerous, and even though it didn't make sense, and even though it could have cost him everything. That's the thing, we just, we just never know. What hangs in the balance of our decision to say yes to Jesus? So what, what's the point? What's the application of all of this? I'm glad you asked. I think there's an application here for those of us who are already followers of Jesus. And for those of us who may not yet be. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, do we prejudge in our mind who is worthy to hear the good news of Jesus? As we go throughout our lives, as we encounter people in our families, in our places of work, at school, on the street, do we tell ourselves, oh, there's no way that person would ever believe? There's no way that person would ever come to church. Do we know people's backstory and their history? And does that keep us from extending to them the love and the grace of Jesus because we know what they've done? We never know what hangs in the balance of our decision to extend grace to them anyway. We never know if the next person we encounter who seems like they might not want anything to do with the good news of Jesus might just become the next great leader of the church. If we're just willing to step out of our comfort zone and give them a chance and extend to them an offer of love and grace and forgiveness. Is there somebody in your life, followers of Jesus, that, that, that you have, your heart has been tugged toward? Somebody that you think that God has been pushing you towards talking to and reaching out to and extending some love and some grace even though it may not be deserved? 
You never know what hangs in the balance of your decision to say yes to Jesus. You never know what might be in store for that person's life. For those of you who may not yet be followers of Jesus, either here in the church or who are watching online or who are listening to a podcast of this in the future, you, you may not yet be a follower of Jesus. You may be thinking to yourself, you just, you just don't know how bad I am. You just don't know my history. You don't know what I've done. You don't know how many people I've hurt. You don't know, you don't know my baggage. There's no way that God could love somebody like me with my history and my baggage. The way that I've hurt and mistreated people in the past. There's no way that there's forgiveness for somebody as bad as me. I want, you to tell you, I want to tell you that you're wrong. If God could save Saul of Tarsus, a first century terrorist who persecuted the church and consented to the death of Christians, you are not beyond the grace and the forgiveness and the mercy of God. As a matter of fact, I believe that the reason that Jesus chose Saul was precisely for that purpose. Saul, who became Paul, later said that himself. He, says, he said, if, if Jesus could show mercy to me, who persecuted the church, there's nothing that you've done that puts you outside of the grace and the forgiveness and the mercy of God. And so if you've been feeling the tug if you've been feeling yourself pushed towards placing your faith in Jesus, exploring a little bit more about Jesus, I want you to know that there is a place for you in His church. There is a place for you in His body. There is grace and there is forgiveness and there is love for you no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter how much damage or hurt you have caused. There's grace. There's mercy and there's forgiveness. And for those of you who aren't yet following Jesus, I just want you to know, you have no idea what hangs in the balance of your decision to say yes to Jesus. You have no idea the, the, the hope and the peace and the purpose and the newness of life that's waiting for you on the other side. The forgiveness and the grace and the family that's waiting for you on the other side if you just say yes to Jesus. In one of his messages, Jesus was talking. He says, the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I'm come, Jesus says, that they might have life and have it to the full. Jesus wants you to experience life in all of its fullness. And it doesn't matter what you've done before. There's nothing so bad that can separate you from the life-changing love of God in Christ, there's life to the full. But that life to the full sometimes means saying no to ourselves and no to our own plans and yes to the plans that Jesus has for our lives. Saul's life was never the same after that moment. He had a bright career in Jewish leadership. He was on his way to the top. If he had continued, he probably would have become chief priest. 
Like he would have had the top spot in all of Jewish religion. He was on his way towards Jewish greatness. Instead, he spent the rest of his days traveling as an itinerant preacher. He was beaten. He was whipped. He was stoned. He was often, not drugs, but like they threw rocks at him. Um, just never thought I'd have to clarify that in church. Um, but he experienced all kinds of suffering. And yet for him, it was worth it because he had experienced the goodness and the glory and the true life that Jesus offers. We never know what hangs in the balance of our decision to say yes to Jesus. So if you're already a follower of Jesus, I want you to just think about the areas in which he's pushing you to say yes, what your next step might be. Maybe it's somebody you need to talk to. Maybe it's a habit you need to give up. Maybe it's something new you need to start doing, contributing, being involved. How can you say yes to Jesus? You just never know what hangs in the balance. There may be a church 2,000 years from now who will benefit from your decision to say yes to Jesus this week. For those of you who do not yet follow Jesus, you just don't know what's in store for you. It might change your entire life, but I promise it will change it for the better. You'll experience newness of life. You'll experience purpose. You'll experience hope. You'll experience grace. You'll experience forgiveness. You'll experience community and family and the promise of eternal life. You just don't know. So I'd like to invite you to say yes to Jesus. You just don't know what waits on the other side until you do. So I'm going to say a prayer. During this prayer, I just want to invite you to respond with a prayer of your own if you would like. Uh, if, if in this time you feel like God is tugging you towards the next step, what, whether that's faith in Jesus for the first time, whether that's coming back to faith in Jesus after a journey away, or whether that's a, a new step in faith for those of you who are Christ followers. If you say yes to Jesus today, and you, I just encourage you to tell somebody about it. Find me after the service. Tell, your, tell somebody. Because I want you to share that with the world. So I'm going to say a prayer. After the prayer, I'm going to invite Mandy up. And she's going to lead us in a new song. A song I came across this week uh, as a result of some of the, the events that have been happening in our country. Uh, it's, it's called, If We Just Talk of Thoughts and Prayers. And I think it, it goes really well with this. Following Jesus means not just thinking, not just praying, but taking action on what we've been called to do and what we know is right. So we're going to pray. We're going to sing a song together. Mandy's going to bless us with a special song that she wrote herself. And then we'll get to some food. All right. Lord, we love you. Lord, we thank you for the way that you have been at work throughout history to bring us to this point. We thank you for the men and women throughout history who have decided to say yes to Jesus in their life. Who because of their faithfulness and their obedience, despite the risk and despite the cost, have, got, have, have brought the church to the place where we can be gathered here today. Father, for those of us who have been feeling your tug in our hearts, 
Whether that's a new step of faith to try something new, to talk to somebody new, to to get involved in a way that we haven't. I just pray that for those of us who have been feeling your tug, that you would help us to say yes. Father, for those who have not yet put their trust in your son, but have been feeling your spirit nudging them in that direction, have been wondering what might be on the other side, I pray that you would give them the courage today to say yes to Jesus. And I pray that you would help them experience the brand new life that waits for them on the other side. Father, give us the courage of Ananias. The courage to say yes, even when things don't make sense. Even when things seem risky and dangerous. Father, help us to take that next step and use our obedience for your goodness and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.